0: To politics. This is the Michael Medved Show.
1: And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great nation where, if the purpose of the uh, search at uh, Mar-a-Lago of President Trump's private residence and the publication about uh, all of the mishandling of papers and of people for material that was classified. If the purpose of all of that was to drive President Trump out of the presidential race, to make him non-viable, non-possible as a presidential candidate, most people would look at this situation and say, well, it, it, it hasn't failed. In fact, a number of our leading political commentators, including Daniel Henninger of The Wall Street Journal, have uh, said that one of the things that may have happened because of the search and because of the attention on potential indictments and even prison terms for mishandling of uh, classified material, mishandling of presidential papers, violations of the Espionage Act and of the Presidential Records Act, that incident may push the former president into the Republican nomination race running, writes Daniel Henninger in the Wall Street Journal, with evidence against the swamp's institutional corruption. Uh, Daniel, I'm very glad to speak to you. Do you still think, a couple of days later, after you wrote that, that uh, President Trump is more likely to go forward now with his presidential campaign than he was before all of this focus on this controversy?
0: Well, I think um, really it is extremely difficult to read uh, Donald Trump's mind uh, in that respect. Uh, I think if he could run, he would. Uh, what he mainly wants to do is be a primary participant uh, in Republican politics, and he has done exactly that through the primary season, season endorsing any number of candidates, uh, most of whom I guess you could say have won, a few lost, but uh, he's been a big player. Mainly Donald Trump likes being a player. Uh, whether he's going to go so far as to seek the Republican nomination again remains to be seen. Um, You know, he has to calculate whether Joe Biden would be running against them or whether it would be uh, a newer face. And uh, I personally don't think Biden is capable of running for the presidency again. Uh, So it just it just remains to be seen. I think one of the questions you raised at the opening was what exactly has been the purpose of this raid on Mar-a-Lago? Uh, I was willing to take it at face value that the FBI and the national security agencies desperately wanted to get their hands on very highly classified documents that were in a room in Mar-a-Lago, locked or not locked, but nonetheless they were there, and they wanted to get them back into a safe place in Washington. That's to one side. But the other question is whether this Department of Justice under Attorney General Merrick Garland in fact, is looking for information that would result in a criminal referral for some reason against Donald Trump, whether it's related to January 6th, the Espionage Act, or something else. That is an entirely different matter altogether. And uh, I, I think the Attorney General has an obligation to clarify that with the American people because otherwise this whole issue just sits over American politics grinding away, getting people more upset about uh, what's going on with Trump and uh, ha- having very damaging after effects. Trump himself just said that he thinks it's time to start lowering the temperature over this stuff. And, uh, boy, it's hard to disagree with that, Michael.
1: And that is for sure. What ab- what about the Trump motivation? I mean, th- one of the latest aspects of this entire matter Is uh, apparently they sent a letter uh, assuring the Department of Justice that there were no longer any classified materials left at Mar-a-Lago at all. They had sent them all back to the National Archives because they were negotiating with all this. Do you think this is just sloppiness or do you think that because they clearly did have uh, material that was highly sensitive and, and in fact classified Uh, or do you think that this was uh, something that uh, they did knowing that they were misinforming our federal law enforcement authorities?
0: Well, you know, I mean, that's an excellent question. Uh, In the midst of any real forthcoming set of facts on either side, it's entirely impossible to say. Uh, I am truly intrigued by the fact that Negotiations over these documents apparently formally stopped on June 3rd. Then we roll forward about two months and the FBI conducts a raid of Mar-a-Lago uh, without any negotiation in the intervening period. That's the thing, in my mind, it's hard to credit. I mean, the burden, the media burden of proof is being put entirely on uh, Donald Trump and his lawyers down there at Mar-a-Lago. But Surely the Department of Justice at this point has its own credibility problems, at least with half the country, in trying to justify uh, this raid on face value, that it was only about these documents. And I would especially say, Michael, I just don't think Attorney General Merrick Garland is really coming out of this looking very good at all. I mean, this was an attorney general who entertained the idea of the FBI uh, investigating parents in Virginia as possible domestic terrorists. This is also the attorney general who allowed crowds, if not mobs, to protest night after night in front of uh, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's house, beating Tom and shouting at him, uh, purporting that it wasn't within his power to stop that. And now we have this raid on uh, the former president's home residence in Mar-a-Lago. Um, I think the Attorney General has a lot to answer for but usually he doesn't answer in more than four or five minute soundbites.
1: So would your advice to the Attorney General be to do a full lengthy, maybe 90-minute press conference in which he tries to answer everything?
0: It, ideally, yes. I mean he's going to hide behind the idea that um, if there is uh, a criminal aspect to all this that he's not allowed to talk about that uh mm-hmm. i take you know the sort of technicalities at face value but look what's happening to the country michael the political rancor is becoming so deep so corrosive uh it seems to be no possibility of it stopping uh you would think that at some level people like the attorney general If not, the president of the United States himself would assume some responsibility of political leadership and want to tamp down uh, the political flames that uh, they have built up with this raid rather than just let them run. We read this morning in The Wall Street Journal that the Justice Department is going to take months to go through these boxes, of course, being running straight through the election and afterwards. Uh, It just strikes me as indefensible that they could let uh, a situation like this uh, run uh, wild, as it is right now, for uh, so many weeks going forward.
1: You say in your column, and the column is is fascinating and brilliantly written and full of insight, like all your columns are. This is called, Mar-a-Lago Search Shows the Swamp's Trump Obsession. One of the things you mentioned in there is that uh, a solution to all of the divisiveness and to all of the rancor and all the bitterness and hysteria that we have in the country right now will not be cured by Trump coming back for a second term. In fact, you say Trump too, meaning the next term of Trump, which could begin, um, we'll remind people as soon as 2025, would not be a replay of Trump won, a more substantive policy-driven presidency than his critics will admit. Trump, two would be a four-year civil war. Um, why would it be so much worse than the first time? We will get to that and more with Daniel Henninger, award-winning columnist for The Wall Street Journal. We'll be right back. Michael Medved Show, one of the things that is most striking about this moment in American history is that the majority of Americans, and it cuts across every dividing line, believe the country is headed in the wrong direction. Uh, So would we change direction in a positive way by returning Donald Trump to the White House? When Trump was president, people also believed we were headed in the wrong direction. Uh, Daniel Henninger of the uh, Wall Street Journal, who uh, does the weekly column Wonderland, which is one of the indispensable things to read if you want to know what's really going on in the nation's capital and in politics in general. Uh, Daniel Henninger says in a very meaningful column, Trump 2 would not be a replay of Trump 1, a more substantive policy-driven presidency than his critics will admit. Trump 2, he writes would be a four-year civil war. The swamp wouldn't drain. It would deepen. The rancor could drown us all. And then he writes, American politics needs new, stable leadership, and Republicans need to find a way to talk about the swamp's threat. What, uh, What do you think is going to be the most important characteristic of that new leadership, other than the fact that it's new and presumably not close to 80 years old
0: well nor would it be uh tainted by the political rancor of the last uh for uh if not eight years um the country's been headed in this direction for a while the partisan divisions between republicans and democrats moving wider or further apart ideologically that began during the presidency of george w bush It started to show up in opinion polls, and it got wider during the Obama's uh, eight years of the presidency. I mean, o- Obama was a divisive president. You know, we would call him always running against the wealthiest and the 1%. The divisions got wider. Then in 2016, uh, Donald Trump was, in fact, elected 45th president of the United States by the American people. And we know at that time, Michael, that the Washington establishment, the swamp, if you want to call it that, or the deep state, went ballistic. They couldn't accept that result. And within days of Trump's inauguration, we had the Russian collusion narrative, the steel dossier. Uh, people forget that ran uh, story after story for the better part of a year, 18 months, uh, and leading up to the Mueller report, uh the Mueller and Robert Mueller's investigation, all of which added up to next to nothing. But the country was consumed with these battles between the Washington establishment and the Trump presidency. Uh, then the pandemic occurred, uh the economy uh was damaged significantly with the closures, schools were shut down. Uh we had another contested presidential election and then the events of invasion of the capitol on january 6th and to some extent uh, donald trump's role in basically watching it uh, on television as it unfolded that afternoon i think the question i'm raising here michael is just how much political rancor can this country endure there seems to be an assumption on the part of many elements active in in commenting this rancor, that our capacity to absorb it is limitless. I don't think that's true. I think at some point, a country begins to break down under the weight of its political uh, divisions and bitterness. And we're starting to see that show up in the, uh, some of the polling that you just mentioned. Something like 75% of the country, an astonishing number, uh, is depressed, think the country is going in the wrong direction. I think the, one of the main ways we can get past that is by turning the page on what has happened to us here. And turning the page means moving on, both Democrat and Republican, to another generation of leaders uh, beyond Biden and Trump who would have ideas of their own that they want to run on, ideas, and I think, on the Republican side that would be a great part of an extension of the Trump of the policies Donald Trump promulgated in in his first term as president. But I really am hard put to see that happening unless another generation of political leadership uh, is allowed to give it to to get its chance to uh, run the country. Otherwise, I think the rancor and the fissures are just going to deepen.
1: Look, I, I think you're entirely correct uh, about that idea that we can take all of this divisiveness and rancor and negativity and again and, I'll use the term hysteria because the number of people who are saying this is it, this is the time for civil war. And then, by the way, it's people on both sides. And it's it's extraordinarily destructive. Today there's a news story about two very prominent conservatives who have radio shows and who are... Uh, calling for a a Republican retribution on uh, liberal institutions, uh, hitting them on the state level for states that are run by Republican attorneys general or Republican governors, uh, using the criminal system to uh, go after Democrats just as a matter of payback. I I assume that you don't think that's a brilliant strategy.
0: I do not think that's a brilliant strategy. Um, You know, since its founding the United States, uh, the founders created these durable institutions uh, that have gotten this country through a lot. Uh, Those institutions, for example, the FBI, the Department of Justice, have big credibility problems right now. Much of the population has withdrawn uh, their belief in the uh, authenticity of those institutions. And for this country to succeed, its system at some level has to function. Uh, It has to work. And I think that's what a lot of the public, a lot of the American public out there is looking at right now. They think the system has become dysfunctional, and they're worried about that. They're worried that things could begin to break down. Uh, If the criminal justice system, if the criminal laws are being used, obviously for political reasons, and clearly they have been used for political reasons against Donald Trump. If the answer to that is retribution and revenge on the part of Republican Attorneys General to politicize uh, laws to use against Democrats, people, Michael, will be going into the streets. And we've seen, whether it's January 6th or the protests and riots of the summer of 2020, more people are willing to go into the streets it will not be pretty
1: no i, th- I think you are I- entirely correct and when you talk about confidence in institutions one of the key institutions people have lost confidence is the operation of our elections and i have no idea how we cure this idea that uh, Many people, a majority of the Republican Party, at least according to the polls, believes the election was stolen. Quick thought on what we do? Well, we'll have to wait, wait till next time, which I hope will come up soon with Daniel Henninger, his weekly column, Wonderland of the Wall Street Journal, Indispensable, and his most recent column with the title, A -a Mar-a-Lago search shows the swamp's Trump obsession. An FBI raid against a former president should never happen. End of discussion. Our discussion continues, coming up on The MedVet Show. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, one of the questions that we have about where we're going and one of the reasons that so many Americans believe we're going in the wrong direction has to do with disappointments and concerns and even alarms about what's happening in our public schools. And the Washington Policy Center, which uh, does such an outstanding job, I mean, truly outstanding job, monitoring issues on the state level, is uh, issuing tomorrow a uh, crucial study, and it's a major study, about the impact on all of the 1.1 million public school children in the state of Washington, the impact from all of the lockdowns and the disruptions of the educational system by the, uh, the government and by the governor uh, that uh, during the pandemic and to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. Liv Finn is the director of the Center for Education at the Washington Policy Center. And uh, one of the, the things looking at this study, Liv, the, the damage to children appears to be much more wide-ranging and much more serious, even devastating, than most of us would have thought. Is that your reaction?
2: Yes, I think that's a good way to put it. The, this policy of closing the schools for nearly two years has caused a permanent setback in the lives of many children, from and many of these children will never recover. From having lost nearly two years of their education and as you say wide-ranging is a good way to describe it because the harm is not only academic and and the academic portion of course is most serious when you lose two years of reading instruction that you should get in second and third grade and when you lose two years of math instruction in fourth and fifth and sixth grade you are not getting the essentials that you will need to succeed in the, in the following grades. And so this will be compounded over time. This is just the beginning of the bad news that we're getting from this policy to close the schools for nearly two years. And it's academic. It's uh, also mental and psychological. Imagine if you're a child who doesn't really have the skills of reading down and you're forced to go on to the higher grade without that knowledge you will get discouraged. You, you, they, you, and and then the isolation from the other peers. There's a lot of data showing the psychological harm to, to particularly teenage children who really need to be with their peers to develop properly psychologically. And then finally, economists are cataloging the damage to uh, uh, earning potential in their lives across, you know, in, in the future. McKinsey has estimated that, Uh, this cohort, this entire cohort of students will lose $110 billion in earnings each year because of what they were denied uh, when their schools were closed to COVID.
1: Which is astonishing when, when you think of it. One of the things that struck me, and good for you for calling attention to it, is the Children who will suffer the most are the children who don't have any compensatory mechanisms at home. It's children who are poor, uh, often children who are uh, Hispanic and black, uh, and uh, children without other resources outside the school itself. How much worse is it for kids who come from disadvantaged backgrounds?
2: well of course it's the worst for them and and these studies are showing that the academic achievement gap between minority and non-minority children which is already very large in washington state one of the largest in the nation is going to increase by 15 to 20 percent so so the children who are who need a quality public school education the most to to earn their way out of poverty are were hurt the hardest and And economists are showing that the poorest neighborhoods, those children are not gonna catch up. They may in the succeeding years uh, recover some of what they lost but they will continue to lose more than half of the education gap accrued during the crisis. This gap will persist in their lives.
1: Now states handle this whole situation differently. Uh, You obviously are very familiar, Liv Finn, of the Washington Policy Center I'm speaking to right now. You're very familiar with the way this was handled in other states. Uh, Are there other states that had uh, less devastation because of the need for lockdowns or the perceived need for lockdowns?
2: Well, yes, the other states had different policies regarding the lockdowns. That's the other part of this study is that we... Uh, I, I listed all the emergency orders by, the, by Governor Inslee closing the schools down and keeping them closed, particularly in September of 2020. You'll recall they closed the schools in March across the nation in March 2020 and then kept them closed for the rest of that school year. And then the question was presented to states across the country, what do we do this September of 2020? And in Washington, they kept the schools closed, but in the states of Iowa, Montana, Wyoming, Florida, Arkansas, Nebraska, North Dakota, Texas, Utah, South Carolina, South Dakota, they opened their states to in-person instruction with safety measures in place. And of course, I don't have all the statistics showing that these other states have, have uh, outperformed our students, but I can tell you some of them will certainly outperform students in Washington. The results on the recent state tests are are Absolutely terrible. Washington students, 70% of them failed the state math test. 50% failed the state English test. And we will get new results from the spring test. And I, I venture to guess that those numbers are not going to improve much and we'll be able to compare them to other states that did open much earlier than washington state washington state you'll recall michael was 47th in the nation in reopening its schools to in-person instruction and because of the power of the teachers union if you look at the states that opened many of them were in the southeast southwest where the union is not as powerful so we really have to start thinking about the role that the teachers union played in in the keeping the schools closed in washington state
1: did all because of this pay off in any sense with a uh, reduced level of uh, hospitalization or death or infection with COVID nineteen? There hasn't. I have not seen any studies that showed that Washington State
2: had less loss in COVID than other states because of this over uh, protective, you know, these policies that kept the schools closed for so long. No, no. We're not seeing a huge divergence among states uh, in deaths because of the COVID policy. So that that gives you an indication that there was much more going on than what presented itself by our our policymakers. Okay, they didn't so understand would, COVID well enough to know. You know, they didn't understand it well enough to to impose these draconian policies on the 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 segment of the population least likely everyone everyone knew this was true at the way months months just a couple months into the the crisis we learned that the students were not passing along the virus in the schools they were the least likely to get infected because of the strength of their immune system so why would we keep them isolated and closed away in their schools if it weren't for
1: yeah. What 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 I want to do if if you can hang on with us for a, a little longer, Liv Finn of the director of the Center for Education at the Washington Policy Center, is what can we do to avoid a disaster like this in the future, and to reinvigorate and to reanimate our school system, and maybe at least try. To begin to make up for some of the losses because when you read these this study from the researchers at, at McKinsey and company the uh, the numbers are are scary they are just appalling and uh, we've just had visitors from out of town and I, I like to uh, s- suggest to them well all the wonderful advantages of living in Washington State but this kind of devastation in our school system is uh, not an indication of any such advantage. We will be right back. What could governor do? What could a legislature do? What could our educational administrators do differently and better? We'll be right back. Medved show, there is a new study that is stunning. It's uh, reading it is like reading a thriller, a disturbing thriller. Uh, it's uh, put forward by the Washington Policy Center by researchers at McKinsey and Company. And uh, the study is about the impact of school lockdowns here in Washington state. And various closures and attempts at uh, distant learning and the disruption of people's lives and what's stunning about it is the suggestion that for some children and it's not a small number this may have a permanent impact It, it can change everything for a lifetime to miss a couple of years of school and what I wanted to speak with Liv Finn about, and by the way, you can get your own copy of this study by uh, going to michaelmedved.com. Look at the banner. It's at the very top. It's a handsome green banner. says Washington Policy Center. You click on that, and you can get all this information yourself to ponder. And the two questions, uh, Liv, why, why I wanted to keep you for a little bit longer is... Number one, what can we do to avoid this kind of mistaken policy or misguided policy in the future? And number two, what kind of reparative damage, uh, uh, repair to the damage that's been done to children, what kind of repair is possible in our educational system for those children who have already suffered uh, here in the state of Washington? uh live finn go ahead
2: yes well first our study is being published tomorrow so you can find it on our website tomorrow and you ask you ask an absolutely great question what can we do today right now the state of washington has 1.5 billion dollars in unspent covid relief funds for the this emergency unspent money i calculated that would be uh, the equivalent of 1400 dollars per school child in washington state and the the right thing to do would be to give that those sums directly to families so they can hire tutors so tutors can individually monitor what the kids need to catch up that would be the right thing to do under this circumstance uh the other thing that could be done is to i mean and i do think that's the best thing to do is if you have the means if you have the means figure out a way to have your child evaluated by someone outside the school system so that you can catch them up so that they can don't fall further and further behind as the schools as as their education progresses from year to year because what's happened here is the schools are socially promoting 1.1 million ch- school children through the system and they're lowering graduation standards so that the graduation rates look look the same but the high school diploma is getting to be more and, you know, to have less meaning in it because of, of this terrible devastation. As you, In your words, it's, it's accurate. It's a devastating thing that's happened to the children of Washington state. The other thing that's happening in other states across the country to help families actually have power over the education of their children are policies like school choice that, that uh, Governor Doug Ducey of Arizona has just passed for the entire State of Arizona, giving every child access to $6,500 in state funding so they can send their children to private schools. That is just passed last month in Arizona. The the governor of West Virginia, Jim Justice, Doug Ducey, and Jim Justice. It's just almost amazing to think about these governors passing these laws in the face, of course, staunch. Union opposition. West Virginia has passed a nearly universal school choice program similar to uh, Arizona. So uh, that is the way to give parents the power they need to direct the education of their children. What's happened? What we've learned over COVID is that the that the special interest in the schools, the union has dis- has too much power, and this is what you'll remember. Remember the winter of twenty 2020, twenty twenty one when parents were crying and begging their school superintendents and the state superintendent their governors their elected representatives their school board representatives please open please please open the schools and the schools said oh yes we'll open next week and only to find out that the union had said oh no you don't and that happened over and over and over again to parents and they started looking around them why is this happening and it and all thinkers pointed to the culprit, who was the union. So we have to change the dynamic, give parents power over over the money. That's the only thing that's money that talks in this in this government run monopoly. You need to give parents control over the money so that they can pull their kids out. You realize, Michael, 41,000 families have pulled their kids out of Washington State's public schools. 41,000, that's the highest percentage in the country, 4% of the total so you know parents are voting with their feet if they have the resources to do that the, the, the numbers of homeschooling has increased by 50 percent the number of private school enrollees has increased by 24 percent and a lot of people have left the state for other states because they have seen that washington does not make uh, a, a priority to educate their children in person in class and that's what we learned during COVID. and the damage is falling on the children and that is a terrible state of affairs for our society in general. We need to call this out for what it is. It's a failure on a grand scale, and we must never do this again to our children.
1: The uh, study is available. All you need to do is go to michaelmedved.com, click on the banner for Washington Policy Center, and it'll send you directly to a link of uh, Liv Finn's work on this very important subject you mentioned before the the law in Arizona providing school choice uh, meaning that the if you want to enroll in a, um, a parochial edu- institution or a private institution of any kind you get a boost financially uh, but the boost as you said was $6,500 I believe I heard you correctly it, yes. are, how, how could that possibly pay for tuition for a year for any well, – um, go ahead. Well, well, that
2: sum – okay, the average tuition at a parochial school in Washington State uh, for elementary school is around $8,000 per child, you know, seven to $8,000. And average high school tuition at a parochial school is like $12,000 per child. So, yes, it doesn't cover the entire cost, but it makes it possible for many middle – class families to afford it, because then the difference is only a few thousand dollars. And so yeah. that is a tremendous help for families that don't have enough money to pay that tuition cost.
1: yeah, and I, and so, again, I think that there is a certainly in Washington state there is an assumption because uh, there are there are some uh, selective parochial schools and uh, and private schools where the tuition is way above those average figures. And, yeah. but what you're saying is there are also outstanding schools that, uh, that particularly with some assistance from, uh, the taxpayer money that you've been putting in your whole life to support these schools, uh, to support education of our, our children, where there are much more reasonable numbers that people can go to. In terms of, um, Aside from the school choice, what what do you think is the second most important refocus that is needed in Washington education?
2: Well, I think that the focus has to shift back to the children <laughs> and away from the adults and back on academics and preparing students for their futures. And sadly, the school system seems to have lost its focus entirely, is now talking about critical race theory indoctrination, all kinds of, uh, you know, radical ideas. That is not central to what the children need to learn, uh, to gain the knowledge and skills they, they will desperately need when they meet the real world. All right? So I, I, I don't, the, the only way we can get the schools focused back on their core mission is to introduce the concept of competition Allow the dollars to leave the system to a private system. It still accomplishes the public, uh, the public benefit of educating the the, the children of our state. Uh, so that I I do think that's the the most powerful mechanism, and and of course transparency and talking about what's going on in the schools so everybody knows what's happening. That's super important. Because, because Michael, so so much as you know, so much misinformation is getting out there. The the uh, the unfortunately, the, the the school systems are not being completely honest and transparent about what they are actually teaching kids now. That many uh, media organizations are covering for them, and so we're not getting the information out in the way it should be. Uh, but I'm seeing I'm seeing uh, very encouraging signs among people who are running for school board, getting on these school boards and saying, no, no, we need to provide an outstanding education to our children, not a mediocre, you know, race-based indoctrination of our children. Uh, And that has to be our central focus as adults.
1: Um, Amen to that. Uh, Liv Finn, great work with the Washington Policy Center and with the Center for Education there. Uh, you can again go to our website to michaelmedved.com and click on the banner for Washington Policy Center doing its bit in this corner of this greatest nation on God's green earth.